1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome
2: back uh, to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger and today we're very fortunate to be joined by anthropologist, writer, photographer, and filmmaker Wade Davis. Many of you will be familiar with his Rolling Stone article last August, The Unraveling of America, powerful rhetoric that went viral and earned him an interview later that month on the PBS public affairs series, Amapur & Company. This Canadian-born former explorer-in-residence for the National Geographic Society has degrees in anthropology, biology, and a PhD in ethnobotany, all from Harvard. Still, his academic calling came later in life, as evidenced by his practical stints as river and big-game guides park ranger and forestry engineer, film credits, honorary degrees, medals, TED Talks, many books and a significant amount of botanical and ethnographic research, not to mention over 200 published scientific and popular articles. He's lectured at hundreds of universities and corporations and his photographs have appeared extensively in books and magazines. Professor uh, Davis, Wade, thanks for making time to share your insights again on the New Books Network. Well, thanks, Keith, for having me. Well, and, and I say again with good reason, uh, Wade's latest book, uh, Magdalena, uh, River of Dreams, a Story of Columbia, uh, published by NOMF in 2020, uh, was the focus of an interesting interview that aired in February on NBN with host uh, Akash Adagji. I encourage listeners to check that episode out and the book itself, uh, which brings to bear all of Wade's talents as writer and storyteller, as he weaves a narrative of Colombia's Magdalena River, rich in regional variation and biological diversity, but really uh, about the resilient people who, who are the country, a story that extends well beyond cocaine cartels and civil wars, Uh, told by someone who first visited the country as a 14-year-old student in 1968. Today, though, uh, let's broaden the scope of our inquiry into the Wade Davis bibliography, so to speak, and and look at some of the professor's earlier books and research. Wade, in 1983, uh, the Journal of Ethnopharmacology published your nearly 30-page article entitled the Ethnobiology of the Haitian, Haitian Zombie, uh, followed two years later uh, by your best-selling The Serpent and the Rainbow, and then Passage of Darkness in 1988. Can you share, or, or how would you choose to frame the larger backstory to your research interests that led you to the country of Haiti, and what was to become um, a career trajectory chain of events? Is, is that a fair way to, to put it?
3: first of all thank you for your wonderful and kind words you know everybody's career trajectory begins in youth and uh you know i've often been asked why or how i became an anthropologist and and uh i I never really had thought too much about that but i uh i reflected on the fact that i grew up as a canadian an anglophone uh living in a a suburb of montreal that was sort of packed on the back of an old Francophone community that went back to the 17th century. And it was the time of the two solitudes in Canada where the French and the English were not speaking to each other. That neighborhood or that community I grew up in was literally divided in half by a boulevard, Cartier Boulevard. And my mother used to send me to a little corner store owned by a Francophone couple, uh, on the on on the edge of that boulevard, and I would sit there as a little five-year-old and look across that wide street and realize that across that divide was another religion, another another language, another way of being. And I, I I was uh, very keen to cross that divide, and and I did so, kind of ignoring the voices of of bigotry and 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 prejudice and um, conflict that hovered not in my family but in my community. And, in a sense, I, I think I've been crossing that 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 road ever since as an anthropologist, you know celebrating the wonder of the other, uh, recognizing that every culture really does have something to say, each deserves to be heard, just as none has a monopoly on the route to to the divine. and i I had a very strong sense of, uh, I think, social justice, if you will, you know, that also was informed by growing up where my family was from, which is the west coast of Canada where you know we were a modest family and and so i worked all the time at the age of 15 fighting fires uh working in logging camps uh, and seeing how the first nations were treated at that time in canada which also kind of alerted me but also offended me and when i got to harvard i really didn't know what to study Uh, i hadn't really thought too much about it and the deadline was the next day and i just come out of the Museum of um, Ethnology, the Peabody Museum, and with my head still sort of whirling with these images of exotic cultures around the world, I ran into a friend in the street, um, and I asked him, well, what are you going to declare tomorrow as a major? And he said, anthropology. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you read about Indians. And and kind of like Forrest Gump, I said, that'll do. And I signed on as a student of anthropology. And I fell into the orbit of David Maybray Lewis, who ultimately would um, establish cultural survival, but David was very much of the, even though he's a British social anthropologist with his own antecedents, he was in effect in the school of North American anthropologists only in terms of his activism. He was a man of Syrian intellect, deep humanity, but also with a very profound sense that the, that that anthropology was all about. Uh, inoculating the world against the virus of intolerance, he really taught me, effectively, the lesson of Franz Boas, which is which which is this idea, you know, that the other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts of at being modern or failed attempts at being us. Every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question: What does it mean to be human and alive? And and so that was kind of the way I was nursed uh, as a young anthropologist but then I also fell into the orbit uh, of the legendary botanist uh, plant explorer Richard Evan Schultes the man for whom mountains have been named in South America the man who sparked the psychedelic era with his discovery of the so-called magic mushrooms in Mexico in 1938 and so if David kind of inspired by the, the power of his eloquence and the the depths of his kind of commitment to the the wonder of culture, Professor Schulte is inspired by the example of his deeds, a a true explorer. And so, you know, I I ended up going off to South America at the age of 19 with a one-way ticket, a small backpack of clothes, and only two books, uh, Lawrence's Taxonomy of Vascular Plants and uh, Walt Whitman's leaves of grass, and for 15 Gosh. extraordinary months I, I wandered uh, and eventually um, hooked up with Timothy Plowman who was Schulte's great protege, and together we became the Coca Project, and we, were, we, we went everywhere in South America where coca, the notorious source of cocaine, but the plant known to the Incas, the divine leaf of immortality, grew. And that's really what forged my life as a botanical explorer. And flash forward a few um, years, and I was back at Harvard as a graduate student now, a much more serious academic aspirant, if you will. By that point, there, you know, there, I'd sort of um, spent four years, or six years actually, uh, thinking only about plants and their place in culture, collecting 6,000 spe- uh, numbers that translates to roughly eighteen, twenty thousand 20,000 specimens. And I just began to feel that something was missing in, in the art of ethnobotany and work of botanical exploration and the ca- cataloging of creation, if you will. I, I wanted something a little bit more intellectually challenging that would actually a- appeal to all my training as an undergraduate in anthropology in the orbit of, of David Mayberry Lewis. And so I was a little bit at a, at a kind of crossroads in my very young career, when suddenly, in his inimitable way, Professor Schultes had the key to the future, and he summoned me to his fourth floor Erie in the Botanical Museum, and asked me very casually whether I was interested in going to the Caribbean island nation of Haiti, infiltrating the secret societies, and securing the formula of folk poison said to be used to make zombies. Well, you know, I immediately said yes, uh, having no idea that w- what I thought would be a lark uh, would consume four years of my life and and open up possibilities that I that were beyond my imaginings. And of course, the the, the fundamental story was was very simple, um, but complex at the same time. But uh, you know, a, a zombie by by Haitian. Or folkloric definition is a living dead, someone who's been magically brought to their end and then somehow resuscitated um, to face a life of uncertainty and uh, and slavery. That said, there, there was also an ongoing interest by Haitian scholars in the reports of the apparent reality of of the living dead. And if so, there had to be some kind of natural product. And in fact, the the Haitians themselves acknowledge the existence of such a natural product with such assurance that it was mentioned in the penal code of the country. so a, a drug of some sort, a folk preparation that was said to bring on a state of apparent death so profound that it could fool a Western-trained physician. And such a, such a, a, a natural product could have huge potential for modern medicine, particularly in the field of anesthesiology. And so what had happened is that nathan klein who who was a great lover of haiti the father of psychopharmacology the, the study of the action of drugs on the brain who had in fact uh, established a psychiatric in, uh, institute in port-au-prince that bore his name had been sort of looking at this zombie phenomena in collaboration with his friend his close friend and colleague Heinz Lehman at Miguel, Miguel University. And, and uh, uh, Dr. Lehman had a student, Lamarque Duyon, who had been obsessed with zombies as a clinician. And uh, he was the director of the psychiatric institute in Port au Prince. And in 1980 or so, he came upon, maybe it was 82, no, no, I guess 80 it was. The astonishing example or or case of a man called Clavius Narcisse, who had actually been pronounced dead in an American-directed philanthropic institution, the Schweitzer Hospital. And his his death had been witnessed by two physicians, both American-trained, one, in fact, an American. And then this man, Narcisse, had wandered back into his community many years later. Uh, He had been pronounced dead in 1962. He popped up again in 1980, and, and neither Klein nor Lehman nor Dr. Duyon believed in magic, and there had to be some kind of material explanation. And if so, such a natural preparation uh, could perhaps yield a drug of great interest to modern medicine. So it was with the goal of finding that drug, which no one had been able to locate, that Klein had come to Harvard and Schultes had said, and of course Schultes was the world authority on medicinal, toxic, and hallucinogenic plants. And Schultes said, essentially, I'm too old for this, <laughs> this mission, if you will, but I've got yeah, the kid yeah. who can do it. Uh, make sense out of sensation to take this phenomena that had been exploded in an explicitly racist way to denigrate a people to try to understand what was going on. and And, you know... Ironic you know, in a way, I, I was sent down to find the chemical basis of a social event and instead found myself understanding and exploring the cultural, psychological, spiritual, political, historical dimensions of a chemical possibility.
2: But you didn't know that at the time, right? That the-
3: oh, of course. I mean, not at all. I didn't know anything at the time. And in fact, one of the, the curious things about this is that because zombies... You know, one of the reasons we think of voodoo as being a black magic cult is the fact that Haiti was the only independent country, a black country, uh, that, uh, for a hundred years, and it was kind of a thorn in the side of the imperialistic age. You know, Haiti used to buy shipments of slaves destined for the American slave market and grant them freedom in 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 the Caribbean. Haiti. Uh, funded Simón Bolívar on the condition that he freed the slaves in Gran Colombia, and in the 1920s, the US Marine Corps occupied Haiti and stayed for 20 years, and every soldier above the rank of sergeant got a book contract, and the books had names like Black Baghdad, Cannibal Cousins, Voodoo Fire in Haiti, A Puritan, Voodoo Land, The, the White King of La, uh, Lagonave, uh, The Magic Island. There were There were scores of these books. Uh, which led to the RKO movies of the 40s, Night of the Living Dead, Zombies on Broadway. And all of these books and this Pulp Fiction, essentially, and these films, uh, suggested the, to the American people, during an era of Jim Crow, where the uh, at a time in which the U.S. Marine Corps was dominated by troops from the South, that any country where such abominations could occur could only find its redemption through military occupation. So, but... By the time I went to Haiti in 1982, uh, there were more U.S. missionary organizations in Haiti trying to transform the souls of Haitian people than there were individual uh, Ameri- uh, uh, Western trade physicians. And it's, it, it, as soon as I arrived in Haiti, I, I always felt like that line from the Bob Dylan song, you know, you know there's something happening here, but you don't know what it is, Mr. Jones. And, and I instantly sensed something profound was going on. And I became obsessed with this idea. Why is it that when we name the great religions of the world, we leave out a continent? You know, it's like, you know, we leave out sub-Saharan Africa, the tacit assumption being that people south of the Sahara had no religious ideas. Well, of course they did. And voodoo is not a black magic cult. The word voodoo is from the font word in Dahomey, um, uh, the Fon word, rather meaning spirit or God. I mean, Voodoo is simply the religious ideas in a very sophisticated devotional tradition of West Africa, and so I became, you know, in that in the process of seeking the so-called zombie poison and an understanding of that ph- phenomena, which which really epitomized the the degradation of 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 the of, of the religion of Africa as it had been depicted in the West, um, I became kind of an evangelist of, of of Voodoo, and you know we're we're talking about books, Keith, and I think one of the things about books is they're hard to do. You know, any you know Hemingway <laughs> said that um, anyone who thinks that writing is easy is either a bad writer or a liar, and I've always found I've written twenty three books now, and I've always found that for any book. You have to have passion. You have to have a sense of mission. You have to have something that carries you through the weeks, months, and sometimes multiple years that it takes to finish uh, a book. And um, certainly, both The Serpent and the Rainbow, which was a popular account of my experience, and then Passage of Darkness, which was a more academic book that was a verbatim um, publication of my PhD, I think it's got to be one of the best-selling PhDs because it, you know it's not a you know I mean it, it's not a huge bestseller but it's a it's you know it sold uh, fifteen thousand copies which is something for a you know a direct raw transcribed sure. PhD but but the point is you know that that I was driven by a sense of passion and and I think that for me personally and professionally the extraordinary thing is that I never really knew. I always advise young people to be patient and give their destiny time to find them you know and um it was only with the writing of the serpent the rainbow which i wrote by but you know by 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 complete chance what had happened is that while nathan klein was alive he created a foundation for that research and 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 the benefactor of that foundation i i didn't know their identity but if i needed ten thousand dollars by wednesday I just had to call New York by Monday night and the money would be in my bank account. The benefactor was a Broadway producer, uh, David Merrick, who had made a fortune with 42nd Street and was had a theatrical interest in, the, in, 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 in voodoo. In fact, David and Nathan Klein, I took them both to Haiti and exposed them to the wonder of voodoo. Then, unexpectedly, Nathan Klein died during routine heart surgery and by complete, I don't know what, 48 hours, um, Mr. Merrick had a debilitating stroke. So I literally went as a young graduate student from being flush with funds to being without funds. And I applied for all the standard academic sources, but it delayed the research for a year until I simply walked off the street in London to a literary agent and said, I want to be a writer. And what do you want to write? I think I've got a book about zombies. And the fellow said, now that might be interesting. And I got a, I got a book contract. And then I used the book contract. First of all, I took her girlfriend to Paris. Uh, and when with what money was left over, I went and finished the work in Haiti. And the, and, and the interesting thing is that by the time all the academic agencies had responded to my request, all favorably they all gave me the money i had already using the fr- the free market and uh, a book advance i had gone to Haiti finished the research was ready to write the book so i'm probably the only person who ever gave money back to the national science foundation cuz by the time they caught up to my research i had finished it and that was a big lesson for me and i ever since then i've always funded my work through the private sector because i I, I found it much more efficient. But the point is, at the end of all that, having done the fieldwork, I actually had to write a book. And I had never written anything more than letters to a loved one or uh, diary entries. And um, came back from Haiti. I had malaria and hepatitis and hadn't noticed for four months. I was like living this kind of, I don't know, um, strange life with the nocturnal gatherings of the secret societies. And it was very bizarre and I literally didn't realize I had both malaria and hepatitis and had had both for months so I was really physically in a kind of a strange space and a friend rescued me and plopped her on her very bucolic farm in Virginia uh, and and said just write your book Wade and then I actually taught myself to write I, I had a great story to tell I had lived it it was real I just had to learn how to tell it and I had written two chapters uh, in Haiti, which I thought were terrific. And, of course, the publishers rejected them. And so I then wrote from my heart. And I, I um, actually taught myself to write, uh, Keith. I I, I had I lived in a little slave cabin on a mountain in Virginia. And I had at my desk my favorite books, you know, Isaac Dennison for landscape, Lawrence Durrell for exotic locales, I mean, way for dialogue, et cetera, et cetera. And I never copied her, but I, I, if I was stuck, I would just lift up one of one of the masters, Alejo Capitier, you know, and 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 say, oh, that's how you do it. So the book was kind of written by osmosis, and uh, it was edited in a day when my New York editor came down to the farm, and uh, then it came out and it sold half a million copies. So suddenly I was a writer, and then you know, and. That gave me the confidence to try to write new books, you know.
2: Sure. So, The Serpent and the Rainbow was your first effort, and and it turns out to be uh, a success, a really successful effort, um, to the point where the movie was. There was a, kind of a strange thing. It, there really is no association with that, right? I mean, is the Wes re- Craven thing.
3: No, I mean, you know, you know, you know. It's a funny thing, you know. I mean. You know, one of the one of the the movie was problematic for me in the sense that, you know, the the movie was consistent with the kind of movies that came out from that Pulp Fiction in the 20s. And everybody held me responsible. But, of course, the truth was, you know, well, first of all, how many how many graduate students are going to join a line, a queue uh, to turn down opportunities to have their PhDs turned into Hollywood movies? I think that would be quite a short line. But more importantly, that people don't understand how movies come into being. And a, a wonderful producer, David Ladd, who's been a dear friend of mine ever since then, loved the book and, and then, you know, really tried to get Peter Weir. That was the idea. who just made Mosquito Coast and Witness and but critically, The Year of Living Dangerously, which is kind of a, a fictional piece, but it was a template on exactly what my experience had been in Haiti because I was actually in Haiti during the revolution that overthrew uh, Baby Doc, and I was a part of that in in a very kind of external way.
2: It was yes, he would have been a good director for that.
3: Well, he was a perfect one, but of course he turned it down, you know, the way it works in Hollywood. Before you know it, it's Wes Craven, and even there... Wes was a good guy and he was trying to break out of the horror genre um, and he wanted to make a regular film. But, of course, the studio says, what are you talking about? You're Wes Craven, z- zombies, food. And so they forced him. <laughs> point, the point of the, that, 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 all of that is that the film that came out, which remains, frankly, a cult film and did very well for them, but has nothing to do with the book. But it reminds me of what Faulkner said, you know, when he was asked repeatedly, what do you think of what Hollywood has done to your books? He pointed to his bookshelf and he said, they haven't done anything to my books. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you know, the book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, continues to sell four to five thousand copies a year, 40 years after its publication. And the film, except for, you know, devotees of late night on Netflix, is largely forgotten.
1: Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah, one of the the poisons that you identify in in your research, tetrodotoxin. Can you unpack a little bit about that? That to me, it's interesting that um, the zombie. There's a zombie brand, and um, but there's a bunch of real research that goes with it. Well, and I, mean, I suppose I, that yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry.
3: No, I mean, I mean the thing about tetrodotoxin. Look. The thing is, remember, I I was uh, sent down by Nathan Klein, a a psychopharmacologist, and Schultes, an ethnobotanist, um, to find, quote-unquote, the drug used to make zombies. Well, the truth is no drug makes a social phenomena. The question really was, could there be a natural product in the environment in Haiti exploited by elements of the Vadun society, presumably the bokor, the negative priests or the sorcerers, um, that could actually make someone appear to be dead such that they would come back into the realm of the living. Now, that's an unusual thing. I mean, there are lots of plants and animals that can kill you, but very few that would be able to put you into a state that would fool a physician such that you could survive and come back into the realm of living so when I when I went to Haiti, you know I did so without judgment, and I secured a couple of formula of you know, of the preparation and all the raw ingredients and I came back with no expectations. I actually came back through JFK airport on Easter Sunday of nineteen eighty two was kind of funny, Keith, because um I had all the ingredients in a in a suitcase made of surplus tin cans from seven up production. In Saudi Arabia, that had somehow gotten to Haiti, and this sort of suitcase of, of, of tin of tin uh, was filled to the gunnels with all the ingredients, um, both raw ingredients, but also various stages in the elaboration of the poison, including, you know, and you know, a dried uh, a dried fish, dried toads, dried snakes, whatever, human bones, whatever. And I opened it at u s Customs without any permits, and this would never happen today, but at the time right. the customs agent at j f k looked at this stuff, and I won't say exactly what he said, but you can infer what he said when I say that he said i don't look, I don't know who the f you are. it's Easter fuck f and Sunday. I didn't even want to f and work today, just get the f out of here." and that's how the zombie poison came. But the point is I then took all these ingredients to various experts at Harvard and I identified the plants and the herpetologist looked at the herbs and you know I, and and I finally you know uh, everything in the poison was toxic in one way or another but nothing could do the deed until I went to the ichthyologist and literally um this fish expert um said to me, I thought you were the poison experts, because our museum was adjacent to theirs. And he reached up in the shelf, and he pulled out not some dusty journal of ichthyology, but rather a little paperback uh, dime store novel uh, from Russia with Love, or maybe it was Dr. No. And I can't remember which, but in one of the books, at the end of the uh, book, 007 gets kicked in the shin by a bad guy and dies and then turns up alive in the next book. And the point is that the bad guy on the blade in his toe of his boot was coated with a drug called tetrodotoxin, which is a very powerful neurotoxin, roughly 160,000 times more powerful as an anesthetic than cocaine. Uh, A lethal dose would um, bounce on the head of a pin uh, you know, 1,600 times stronger as poison than uh, potassium cyanide. And the most interesting thing about tetrodotoxin is it's a big molecule and it kills in a very specific way. It blocks sodium channels in the nerves causing complete peripheral paralysis, dramatically low metabolic rates, and yet consciousness is retained until the moment of death. And it turned out that the ingredient in haiti was one of a number of marine fish and it turns out there's an order of fish the tetrodontiformes found throughout the tropical world that ha, that that well we now know we, we the biogenesis wasn't understood at that point we now know they vector a dinoflagellate from the sea which accounts for the variability the toxicity the fish location to location season to lo- season male to female etc but the point is that there was also a very rich tradition in Japan in particular of the same group of fish being used as a culinary delicacy and this is a famous fugu fish right and, and you, you know the popular accounts are that you have these specially licensed chefs who are taught to eliminate the toxic organs the viscera of the fish so that the connoisseur can happily eat the non-toxic fillets as sashimi but that's kind of a puritanical interpretation of what is in fact a marvelous Japanese aesthetic experience because the role of those licensed and trained and they are licensed and trained chefs is not to eliminate the toxin it's to reduce the level of toxicity in the flesh of the fish such that the connoisseur can enjoy the 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 effects of a mild intoxication which include tingling sensations up and down the body a sense of euphoria etc so it's one of the few substances a few foods that walks the line between sustenance and drug and that's what the chefs do and because of that rich tradition there was an extraordinary literature that biomedical literature that told you exactly what tetrodotoxin can do and as it turns out remember i wasn't looking for a drug that could make zombies in haiti i was looking for a drug that could make someone appear to be dead in such a way that could fool a physician well it turned out that in japan in a situation completely unrelated to what was going on in haiti there were case after case after case of individuals uh, pronounced dead who returned to life nailed into their coffins who came back to life you know, laid out by their grave for three days to make sure they were really dead, only to return back into the realm of the living. And this turns out to be the quirky kind of pharmacology of the drug, right? And the exciting thing in terms of the Haitian research is that it took a phenomenon that had been sort of very much in the realm of the phantasmagoric and grounded it in reality because it showed that without doubt the sorcerers in Haiti had identified a natural product that, if administered in the right way at the right time, not only could make someone appear to be dead, but had done so many times in the past in a totally different cultural context. So suddenly this took the zombie thing literally from the realm of the phantasmagoric into the realm of the plausible, and you had to then ask, you know who's controlling the drug? How's it being used? you know what's the purpose of its uh, implementation that That was what was so exciting and when i say that you know sure. that revelation opened up an ethnographic vistas that nobody had seen that allowed you even to understand ultimately the power of the duvalier regime and, and how and where the tantamaku came from so it was to me it was a culmination of everything that ethnobiology had promised you know using using the use of a a plant or an animal as a kind of lens, a metaphor that would take you into places that otherwise would not be seen, you know, by the casual observer. That was that was the exciting thing about that research.
2: Do, do you feel like some of the, I don't know, the critiques or some of the, there there was a little pushback about some of the research that the the level of the toxicity wasn't there. The level of the drug. Uh,
3: yeah. I mean, I, the, I, 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 the pushback was, was really, really on. Un- yeah, you know, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I mean, the 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 world's expert on tetrodotoxin was a man called C.Y. Kao who worked all his life in a kind of dreary lab at Downstate Medical School in New York. And I went to see him, and he was so excited. This was going to put him on the map. And he's the guy who shared with me all these scientific but also journalistic accounts of people in japan who had been nailed into their coffins by mistake and i was very grateful to dr Cao and i brought when i you know had my kind of um, flurry of notoriety i tried to share that with him and i brought bbc and i brought abc 2020 to his lab and all he wanted to do is talk about his research and all they wanted was a soundbite saying TPX, Tetrata Toxin could do this. And it was kind of poignant watching him kind of in 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 sort of a kind of sad desperation trying to get people to pay attention to what he had done. I was very moved by it in a way. But afterwards, we were Xeroxing some articles and he looked up at me and said, Why zombies? And I said, I don't know Dr. Cow. And what he was really saying was, Why have I worked in this crummy lab and no one's paid attention? And why do you come along as a young graduate student and get into Time magazine?" And I, I And my answer was, I don't know. And my answer said, I don't know why the world's more interested in zombies, Dr. Cow, than the action potential of nerves, which I think is really interesting what you study. But here we are. And then he wanted to have samples of this preparation analyzed. And I said, great idea. Bear in mind, these samples now are old because Klein had died and they had been in his lab. And also, I I emphasize what we now and then knew to be true, which is that there was no consistency to the samples. We knew that the fish varied in terms of their toxicity dramatically, season to season, location to location, as I said earlier, female to, you know, and, and clearly... You know something was going on now we know of course it's vectored by a dinoflagellate but the point is what i emphasize to cow is the way that the sorcerers had a way of rationalizing failure and emphasizing successes they don't believe that the zombie poison makes a zombie and it doesn't um and i i, I won't even go there but there was a whole mm. kind of cultural explanation that allowed the sorcerers to rationalize failure and emphasize success, and Dr. Cao just couldn't get that. You know, he said, you got a zombie poison, make me some zombie rats, you know, in the lab. And um, when we had the samples analyzed in Japan and Switzerland, in Japan, um, the, the, the one sample came, two samples came back, both with negative amounts of tetrodotoxin, trace amounts, but nothing sufficient. In Switzerland, they came back, one of the samples, with significant um to teratotoxin just enough to get into the ballpark of possibility. And the point of the point of the thing was that those results actually showed something important that TTX could survive the folk preparation. But because the amount wasn't enough in those two random samples right. that Dr. Cow then sort of went on a rampage and started to send letters all around the country I'm here to alert you to a serious case of fraud in science. And it was really libelous because you can't have a fraudulent hypothesis. You can have a wrong one. And he was welcome to disagree. But fraud implies a manipulation of data. And there was no data to manipulate. I had simply identified the empirical observation that in the habitat of Haiti, their sorcerers had identified a natural product that not only could but without doubt had made people appear to be dead and that was either a tremendous coincidence or something was going on and of course the purpose of science is not the generation of absolute truths but better and better ways of thinking about phenomena. and dr cow was the one who set in a so-called controversy that really didn't exist right um and it was unfortunate and uh and eventually it sort of petered out because um, it turned out he was illegally using state research funds to fund this kind of campaign against my research. And uh, it was sort of sad, really, because, you know, of course, by that point I had moved on to other projects and um, he was still flailing away in his kind of uh, bitterness. It was sort of sad.
2: Yeah, the professional jealousy thing. Kind of goes with uh, just about every field, right? And 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 you mentioned you'd already moved on, and you know the zombie brand has become a, a multicultural well, phenomenon. But let me,
3: but, you know, right? well, let me just add one thing, Keith, that that yeah. did irritate me about this. Is that you know my purpose in studying zombies and back to our earlier conversation was to make sense out of sensation it was to take a phenomenon that had been exploited in uh, a gratuitously racist way to denigrate a people and to show that the fear in haiti was not of zombies as the movies imply but of becoming a zombie, and that it was one small thread woven through the fabric of an extraordinary African worldview. Now, that research, which now we can look back on, you know, uh, reflectively, at the time, it was considered to be very dangerous. When I did apply, before I got the book advance, to the National Science Foundation, with the proposal to investigate the, the, the secret societies of Haiti, the Bizango Champuel. Which were the fountain to which Papadoc went to create the notorious Tonto Makut? I got the grant, but the anonymous academic reviewers wrote on the return documents Davis must be told if he tries to do this, he'll be killed. I didn't think it was like that. I didn't think I was at risk. I, but my point is that that was the perception of what I was doing, right? And I was doing it for a very sincere, cause I wanted to show the world the legitimacy of voodoo so one of the things that made me somewhat embittered by these gratuitous attacks by people like cow was the fact that you know I was by academic consensus effectively putting my life on the line in order to be able to try to expose the racist underpinnings of the entire, Notion We had a voodoo, uh, you know, criticized by a guy like Kao was was difficult given what I was trying to do. The happy the happy part of the story is the books exist, you know, the books still sell every year. Yeah. And the greatest advice I ever got um, in the midst of this flurry of sort of uh, fame that, you know, ephemeral as all fame is that came down on me completely out of left field when I was a young scholar. Uh, was an old wizard of a friend of mine, a professor of sociology at Brandeis, a, a, a kind of Jewish sage who was also a Buddhist scholar, uh, uh, Charlie Fisher, and he was always like my uncle. He was uh, a, still a dear friend and and uh, but a great mentor. And we were driving around Boston in his jalopy one day, and he looked at me and he said, "Wade, do you want to be a zombiologist?" And I laughed and I said, Uncle Charlie, no. And what he was really saying is, do you want to spend the rest of your life circling the wagons and defending your academic idea against all intruders, or do you want to get on with your life? And it was the best advice I ever got, Keith, because ever since then, I've only looked forward. I've never looked back over my shoulder, which sadly is the, most, the only direction that most academics ever experience
2: good point. And hey, you wrote Passage of Darkness after *After The Serpent and the Rainbow.
3: I was a graduate student at Harvard. I had to deliver a thesis, but I had to fund the thesis research. And then having funded the research that way, I had to deliver a book. So I wrote The Serpent and the Rainbow for Simon & Schuster as a graduate student. And then having finished The Serpent and the Rainbow, I had to deliver a PhD. I moved to Provence with a French girlfriend, and a little village of 26 people, I wrote my PhD thesis. And and unbeknownst, unexpectedly, it was immediately picked up by University of North Carolina Press and published verbatim, not a word of editing. And that came out and sold itself 12,000 copies. I mean, Serving the Rainbow sold 500,000 copies. But my PhD thesis, and, and here's an interesting thing, is that the passage of dark, the book Passage of Darkness is written, it's, it's well written, but as expository prose, but in, a, in an academic format with citations and, you know, Johnson 1924 and Philip 1952 said that J- Jeremy 1921, you know. The interesting thing is that the academics think Passage of Darkness is a more authentic book because it fits their modality, right? The truth is that if you read The Serpent in the Rainbow, you can see exactly what I experienced and what I felt. And that is a much more honest depiction of the quality of my research, both for good and bad, than the hidden uh, material of Passage of Darkness, where the gloss of academic respectability is used, in effect, to deny access to what actually happened on the ground and so to my mind the Serpent from the rainbow is a much more honest book than the academic book and yet the academic book is accepted more reflexively by academics simply because it's in their language right and it's in their vernacular and yet the truth of the matter is if there is one thing to criticize about my research in Haiti is not the theory about tetrodotoxin but rather the kind of zealous, almost evangelical uh, support of the Voodoo society. And I did become, in a way, a zealot, you know. Um, To some extent, I think I whitewashed the reality of the second Duvalier regime. And there are a lot of areas that I think I could have been properly criticized for that I never was. And the reasons and the places that I was criticized, in my opinion, have no foundation whatsoever
2: that's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up and that it definitely a bias here when, with regard to academic literature and somehow the idea that it's more objective and, and that that, it's total bullshit.
3: Academic writing is just people hiding between behind unnecessary terminology. Uh, The terminology is really just symbols of your, uh, of your membership in a secret society. In other words, academic, academic departments are all about their secret societies, just like I studied in Haiti and you get entree to it with your PhD, but you, you know, all secret societies are about both secrecy and public demonstration of the secret. And so you demonstrate your membership with this, you know, tangled language and you're, you measure your currency by your ability to, to use a secret society language. Right. So all the, I mean, completely gratuitous and unnecessary uh, technical language of, of contemporary anthropology has nothing to do whatsoever with conveying information and everything to do with
2: demonstrating that you're a part of the cult. Uh, yeah, the tyranny of the noun phrase. Uh, you know, uh, let, I wanted to cover a, a couple things here and obviously skipping over uh, a, a quite a few of your books, but one of your next books big works was your 1996 book, One River, uh, Explorations and Discoveries in the Amazon Rainforest. Uh, It's a book at least partly about uh, ethnobotanist Richard Schultes, and you you mentioned, that you mentioned, and and your travel and research with uh, the late Tim Plowman, who you also mentioned, but but also uh, about the loss of um, traditional cultures.
3: You know, to write a book, you have to have passion. And Tim Tim Plowman, who was my big brother, taught me almost everything, um, died of AIDS, and I was um, Professor Schultes, for whom Tim was the ultimate protege, um, the only protege, couldn't attend the memorial service at Field Museum in Chicago, and it fell to me to deliver the eulogy, and Tim was such a beloved figure, there was not a dry eye in that vast hall, and... Professor Schultes was too ill at the time to attend, and so he sent a tape that ended with him reading, or citing words from Hamlet: "Good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels, sing thee to thy rest." And people were weeping openly. And I, as I delivered the eulogy, in my head I was saying, "I'm going to write a book that put these two men in proper historical context," and that's what One River became. And you know, I think. That's back to this theme that you have to feel passionate. You have to feel on a mission to complete a book. But also, in the case of One River, it was a, you know, in retrospect, it was kind of an amazing uh, experiment because I had no idea whether, you know, the world was ready for th- this long account. It took six years to write. But in retrospect, it also was a book that transformed me from being a scientist who writes reasonably well to being a writer who writes about science. And that was really my, One River was the launch of my career as a literary figure, if you will. You know, I mean, it was nominated for big prizes and so on and so forth as a work of literary nonfiction. And I think that's what really set me on the path uh, as a writer, a storyteller. And that's really how I define myself to this day.
2: But your research with, with Tim Plowman there, hey, you guys and, and Tim himself, right, uh, looked at the cocoa leaf and, uh, and did quite a bit of research. It was a definitive study
3: on coca, the divine leaf of immortality. I mean, coca is to go gain what potatoes are to vodka. And, you know, at this moment, we're involved in a big effort to legalize coca leaves as a nutraceutical. But, you know, you know, this, this was um, an account of... Not just botanical exploration, but of a, a, a kind of bildungsroman, a coming of age, and we're just about to launch um, a film project, a multi-part series for Netflix, or um, perhaps another streaming agency, based on the book One River, because it's a, it's really a story of, a, of of a young boy in the loose, you know, in the shadow of two great mentors, um, um, and you know the interesting thing about the book One River is that it was translated by a wonderful Colombian poet, the late Nicholas Sesquan, and it came out in Colombia in 2002 uh, at a low point in Colombia's fortunes as a country. And at a time when nothing good was being said about Colombia, suddenly there was this 700-page book um, that said nothing but what was wonderful about Colombia. And so for uh, two generations of young Colombians, unable to... Because of the conflict to travel within their own country, One River or El Rio uh, became like a map of dreams and it had huge impact and launched my whole kind of contemporary position in Colombia. And it was recently, for example, selected by the National Library, anticipating the 200th anniversary of Colombia in 2021. Uh, They selected the first of 25 books. Of what will be 200 books the most two, important 200 books in the history of the country and one river was one of the first 25 i mean one of the things that i think is is interesting about all of my books keith is you know none of them have been super best sellers except maybe serpent the rainbow but they all come out and they have incredible longevity you know they, they i mean they all just nothing's ever goes out of print
2: Speaking of that, you you did a series of lectures, those Massey lectures, and that you released those. You did a, they came out originally, I guess, broadcast as a a CBC radio idea series in in 2009, uh, The Wayfinders. Hey, what is wayfinding and, and how did you harness that idea?
3: You know, this connection between biological and cultural diversity, which we now take for granted. But in the 1970s, you know, the naturalists were at odds with the anthropologists because the naturalists viewed people, indigenous people in particular, as part of the problem, and anthropologists couldn't abide the misanthropic elitism of the naturalists. And the, there was a moment in 1979, I think it was, when the Dalai Lama, at the end of his first tour ever of America, was speaking at Harvard, and that same night, E.O. Wilson, the legendary biologist, was kitty-corner in a different hall introducing a man called Norman Myers who had written a book called The Sinking Ark which was the one of the very first books to anticipate the looming uh, biodiversity crisis and naturally all the faculty and all the students were across the way to listen to his holiness and in apologizing to Myers for the sparse audience in that hall Ed Wilson is kind and decent and wonderful and brilliant a biologist as ever and man who's ever existed he's a kind wonderful man He nevertheless said, you know, if even Harvard students can't get their priorities right and they'd rather be across the way, listen to that religious kook, quote, um, we know how far we've got to go. And that he wasn't that was just how it was back then. And that night I was the only student running back and forth between the two lectures. You know, I've always been, you know, as I said, back to my connection to David Mayberry Lewis and cultural survival, aware of this this horrific a fact that you know, seven thousand languages of humanity, half of them not being taught to children, and you know anthropology as activism. Uh, so, I had written a series of things. Uh, you know, uh, when when One River came out in '96, I, I then had a pent up material, and it's often as a writer, this has been my way. I've you know some major books, Serpent the Rainbow, One River, Into the Silence. Magdalena. But then in between these books, I, I knock off these other smaller book, books that lead me with having written 23 altogether. Um, I had written a book called uh, The Clouded Leopard and another book called Shadows in the Sun, collections of essays, all of which were about this whole issue of biological and cultural diversity and loss. Based on that and an article I wrote for the National Geographic magazine, I was recruited as the Explorer and residents of the National Geographic. And I had written a book called Light at the Edge of the World, which the Geographic published the first year that I became an explorer in residence, which was kind of the manifesto for my contribution to their conservation mission. And, and my, you know, we, the, the, the explorers and residents, there were seven of us Jane Goodall for primatology, Bob Ballard for underwater archaeology, the guy who discovered the Titanic, uh, Johann Reinhardt, the high altitude archaeologist who had found the Ice Maiden and Sylvie Earle, the great oceanographer, her deepness. And I was a cultural social anthropologist, looking at issues of language loss and 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 the erosion of cultural diversity. You know, as part of that mandate, even as I was writing Into the Silence, which was a 12-year project in which I didn't take a weekend off. Because I was also writing five other books and making 30 films for the National Geographic. So I'd be in Polynesia making a film about wayfinding, and the boys would cut uh, for surfing and beer. At the end of the day, I'd be back in my hotel room, back into the journals of Oliver Wheeler on Everest. I mean, I've never worked so hard for that long. But in the midst of that, I was invited to do the CBC Massey Lectures. And even though I'm a Canadian, I wasn't really that hip to what they were. But it turns out it, there's no country in the world that has a more significant lecture series where they, the CBC, in collaboration with Massey College at the University of Toronto, uh, selects an intellectual figure to deliver a series of five lectures in five Canadian cities before live audiences that will be edited into a book before the lectures begin and then broadcast on national radio not once but three times over the course of the year. It would be the equivalent of a single scholar being given 15 hours of NPR primetime radio in the United States. And you know, previous speakers had included you know, people like Martin Luther King, um, John Kenneth Galbraith, Margaret Atwood, um, Carlos Fuentes. You know, it was a pretty uh, illustrious group. And so I was working on the book Into the Silence. And it's actually a funny story because I suddenly realized that for these lectures, you actually had to write a book. And I thought I had kind of drained the barrel with a book called Light at the Edge of the World. And I realized that, in fact, I had done all these expeditions for the geographic as an explorer in residence. And at the same time, I was trying to get Into the Silence finished. And there was a marvelous moment. I was in L.A., and my phone rang, and it was Bernie Luck from um, CBC Ideas, uh, which is a sponsor within CBC of this series. And what had happened is that Margaret Atwood had a new novel that had been scheduled, but her uh, manager or whatever agents didn't want the book to come out in the fall of the Obama election campaign, and so she wanted to ask me if I shift so that she could come and do her Massey lectures in the year that I was supposed to do them and I'd flip with her. And the funny thing about the story is that Bernie calls me up very deferentially and uh, says, you know, wait, I, I just, I hate to say this. I know it must be a terrible imposition, but, you know, Margaret would really, as asked, and is there any possible way that you could delay your Massey lectures for a year? And of course, Inside myself, I'm saying, My God, Keith, there's a God. There's a God. And I'm kind of lifting my hand up and going, Yes, yes. And then, but into the telephone receiver with Bernie, who's become a great friend, I said, Well, Mr. Luck. You know, anything for Margaret, you know, (laughs) and (laughs) as the thing was flipped. And then but then still, I had to write that book. And I wrote, um, even as I was working on Into the Silence, a book that to research and write took 12 years. I pounded out The Wayfinders in three months. And it's got a kind of conversational tone, but it's turned out to be an extraordinarily um, popular book, in part because it explains to young people why anthropology matters, And it's been picked up by a lot of, you know, introductory courses in anthropology um, because of that.
2: Sure. Nice. I realize it's not your last book, but, you know, there's that theme that you interweave the history and into the silence. I have to say, uh, and the subtitle, The Great War, Mallory and the Conquest of Everest, that's a, a major work there.
3: Just in terms of talking about books, Keith, there's a fantastic story to that, because I had traveled across southeastern Tibet, 5,000 miles uh, from Shandu to Lhasa and Kathmandu. I had been with a friend of mine, Dan Taylor, who was a son and grandson of medical missionaries, and nursed on the story of Maori. And Daniel and I went back the next year, and we were at the base of the Kanchung face, the east face of Everest, at a place called Petan Ringbo. Where you're standing on ground higher than anything in Europe, and yet looking up at two vertical miles of ice rising to the south pole of Everest, and daniel had just started talking about these Englishmen in dressed in tweeds who read Shakespeare to each other at twenty-three thousand feet, and as an Anglophile, I was completely captured. Right, sure. and so I started thinking about it, and I got I got this sort of idea that you know you couldn't begin to understand these men of 1921. You know, these were young men, and yet I knew from their class and age that almost all of them would have gone through the agony of the Western Front. And so, you know, to tell their story, you had to tell the story of the war. And so I set out, uh, I I, I wrote this in a letter to my agent off the cuff, and it resulted in by far the biggest book advance in the history of mountaineering. Then, three months later, uh, unbeknownst to me, conrad anchor who's become a good friend of mine a man i respect enormously a conrad was part of this sort of trumped together expedition to find mallory's body and mal and and conrad singularly was responsible with his intuitions on a mountain with finding mallory's body and of course by september the, the discovery was made in may by discovery by the september it was clear there are going to be 10 books out so the question is what remained to be said and i offered to give all the money back to Knopf, but my editor at the time, the legendary Ash Green, said, look, we didn't give you all that money for a book on Mallory, we want a book by you on Mallory, so get on with it. It was a wonderful <laughs> thing to say, and then I said to him, immediately I said, okay, that's fine, but it's going to take 10 years now, because I immediately knew that I would have to let these books come out and then take the story deeper. And, you know, it's a great example that, you know, there's, there's um, as Truman Capote said of Kerouac, there's writing, there's typing, and there's also Xerox there's research and there's Xeroxing. And all these books that came out in September were essentially Xerox versions of what had already been said about Maori. But I, it forced me to take the story to a deeper level. And I set out to find out where, for example, each of the 26 men who went to Everest on those three expeditions in 21, 22, and 24, I wanted to find out where each man had been every single day of the four years and four months of the Great War, and I did that. Um, To write that book, I bought 600 books. Uh, I visited 57 archives. You know, it was like this obsession that my my sister thought was going to kill me. And again, it gets back to this idea of books, right, Keith? You know, who knew when I sat down... To teach myself to write with *Serpent and the Rainbow*, that that book would be successful. Who knew when I conceived *One River* at the memorial service for Tim Plowman that it would do that? Who knew that *Into the Silence*, after twelve years, um, would come out? It could have fallen flat. Instead, it won the Samuel Johnson Prize, which was at the time the top award in the English language for literary nonfiction. But, again, as a writer, you don't know this is going to happen. You just have to have faith in the story, and then you let the story out, and you see what the world does with it.
2: Yeah, all, all 700, or not really, but close to 700 pages. So, mm-hmm. um, hey, um, hey, thanks so much for, for all your time. Let me just ask you a, a couple final things. You've already pretty much um, – you mentioned you're working on that film project, but I know that that can't be the only based on what you've said today. that's that's clearly not the only thing you're doing. Um, so what are you working on in addition to your film project?
3: I'll tell you, I, I, here's a, 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 a nice thing perhaps to share with your audience. You know, one of the things I learned from my father, which really was great, is he wasn't a religious man, um, but he had a strong sense of decency. And ethics and and right and wrong and dad used to say there's good and evil in the world son take your side uh, and get on with it and what he was getting at is that life is not about winning it's not about vanquishing evil as the Christian ideology would suggest you know the fallen archangel the devil being defeated by Christ if we just wait long enough Uh, the Buddhist and the, the Vedic scriptures are much more I think insightful in the sense that when, you know, Lord Krishna, for example, was asked the question that caused medieval monks to be burned at the stake, if God is all-powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? And if you asked that question as a, a Catholic priest, you would have committed a terrible heresy because it, that question challenged the whole foundation of Christianity and, and, and religious ideology. But when Lord Christian was asked that question, he answered, uh, to thicken the plot. In other words, good and evil exists and it doesn't go away. This is what the Buddhists mean by, you know, all life is suffering. That doesn't mean all life is negative. It means that uh, negative things happen. The cause of suffering is ignorance. By that, they don't mean stupidity. They, They mean the tendency of human beings to cling to the cruel illusion of our own centrality in the stream of divine existence. And the path of the pilgrim is not focused on a destination but a state of mind and if you realize like my father said you you pick a side you don't expect to win you know but you don't stop trying and that's what allows one to keep moving ahead and and as i i I said earlier you know a lot of people only look over their shoulder to what is behind them and and i think the people that we respect are those who never look over their shoulders but always look ahead and so all of these books that i've written all of these experiences that i've had to me are just you know i don't know they're they're just like what happened and my focus is always on what is ahead and so you're right i mean i i have actually three different major film projects underway one for the book magdalena which we haven't even talked about um, uh, one for into the Silence and another for the book one River. and i'm 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 at the moment, you know, uh, have a two book contract to to do a collection of essays. like I always do between major books. I've got a a body of work that is waiting to come out, including the Rolling Stone essay and pieces I've done in Scientific American and you know, and then and then, of course, the next big book, which is is um, is, is something I won't talk about. But I can't wait to dive into.
2: Nice. Um, hey, well, I wanted to ask you as well. You, if you could recommend something to to listeners that kind of complements anthropology. You mentioned boas and 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 your influences. Hey, what what do you think are foundational works for well, people think, who are interested?
3: Well, I think you know um, um, Charles King's book on the history of anthropology. And it's had it's got two different titles, one in in America, one in England. But I it's what I cite in that essay I write, why anthropology matters in Scientific American. I think that's a, a really important book for people to read. And um, you know, in terms of my own writing, I mean, I can I can cite so many different sources. I mean, Gary Snyder, the poet, I never went anywhere without out a collection of his poems in my pocket. Um, nice. I, at some point, I. A, a, a year ago you know i i, I remember I, he was my such my hero i mean we were so and i remember in, in when i was an unknown hadn't written the book i had a girlfriend called edapei who had a hippie van that looked like a louisiana bordello and uh we we roared down and i said we're going to go see gary and somehow we managed to drive from vancouver to Kitkadizzi, which is his home in the sierra nevada and after Many challenges, we found our way driving up into his garden, where he was in his garden. And I I got out of the hippie van and (laughs) immediately began to um, spew apologies for precisely what we had done, interrupted his day. And um, he said to me something wonderful, anyone who can find me deserves to be here. And then (laughs) Gary, when he was at Reed College, uh, had written his undergraduate thesis on hide a myth. And he had never been to Haida Gwaii, but I had just come out of working a year and a half in a logging camp, and as a park ranger in Haida Gwaii, I knew all the Haida. And so we actually had a lot to talk about, and uh, he, you know, it was like a really important moment for me. And he was so kind to me, and um, and I hadn't written anything yet. And then just a year or so ago, I I said, you know, I've got to just let Gary know. And so I took every book I have written and sort of put it together as a care package and signed every book and uh, sent the box uh, down to Kit with an kind of overriding note saying, you know, my dear Gary, you wrote every one of these books, which is really true, you know. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about lineage, right? You know, the, the great teachers, you know, we go through life as acolytes looking up to teachers, and suddenly before we know it, we're teachers looking down at acolytes and you know that's the whole thing you know the bitterness comes to those for whom life becomes a story that they lose the power of comprehending as they get old but wisdom comes to those who understand that the student is more important than the teacher in the lineage of knowledge right and and that's the whole thing right so you know now i'm i'm 67 and kind of i've kind of even though i still think of myself as a youngster and have the same zeal and excitement and um you know, and, and, and energy and, and um, you know curiosity. The truth is, I'm an old guy, and uh, you know, and not too old, but old. And my goal is now to to transmit, not 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 in any kind of um, I don't know egotistical way, but but you know, it, it's not that I know anything, but I am I am a channel for what life was like during my lifetime. And I know that life that I lived, and and, and those are experiences and moments that no one born today can ever know, right? That's the nature of history. And so my obligation is to share with young people those those moments, that passage, that year, those years, right? And suddenly that's how you find yourself being transformed from... From student to teacher, from um, you know um, aspirant to uh, acknowledged, uh, from um, seeker to sage, right? That's 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 really what it's all about.
2: Well, thanks for for sharing that, and I'm I'm happy to hear uh, the uh, the Gary Snyder link because uh, I think anybody who's uh, read any modern poetry probably has some inkling. Of Snyder and just the simplicity of his vision I can see why you two kind of intersected there so the thing
3: is Keith I mean our, our backgrounds are so similar I mean I I fought fires you know I was a logger you know I came from the Pacific Northwest I mean he was a guy he was a guy who told me that I that it was okay to be from here that it was you know to feel these things you know and, and he was an anthropologist. He loved anthropology and Zen and Buddhism and, and cutting trail. And and that's all that I was already doing, right? I was doing that before I discovered him. And then once I discovered him, he was never apart from me. You know, I, I, never, I never was on a trail, and I've been on a lot of trails, without a collection of Gary's poems in my backpack.
2: There's a there's a book. It's called Poets on the Peaks, and Snyder's in there along with Kerouac and some of the other people who were in those uh, lookouts in Washington State. Um, that, re- as you as you talked about that, it it reminds me of that 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 you're an explorer in residence. Hey, that has a pedigree that that you set up long long time ago.
3: Well, you know, I mean, part of part of the wonderful thing about the transmission of knowledge. Is that you want the student to achieve more than the master, and you know, in a kind of, you know, it's all it's all relative, right? Like, I mean, what Schulte's could do, what David Marberry Lewis could do, what Gary could do, by circumstances, I can not like I don't mean to say do better, but I can, in a strange sense, do more, right? Like I I feel like I feel like all the energy of those three men. And, and, I, and, and I, I must say, unabashedly, I'm not ashamed to say they're all men. I'm a man. I believe in archaic uh, transmission of knowledge man to man. I really, I, I, you know, that may be politically incorrect, but I, I, that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a big lineage for me. Um, and, and I feel that in a way, I don't know, I feel, I feel that I've done honor to all three men. You know, I remember, you know, when Schultes, when Tim died, Schultes sent me a note that said, you know, now that Tim is gone, uh, you are my legacy. I remember one time with David Mayberry Lewis, I I sort of, you know, in a moment of weakness, I said, you know, David, I I wonder if I should have become a professor and and a teacher. And he said, Wade, you're a teacher just with a bigger stage. And of course, now I've become a professor, you know, but then with Gary, it's more like you know it's it's always interesting to me to look at Gary's ability to find the universal in the moment, but his moments dramatic and wonder- wondrous as they've been weren't nearly weren't nearly as wide reaching as mine have been because I mean I've been able to go to fifty countries a year you know to focus on this to be empowered by this by and so i don't i don't stop my reverence in a moment for gary or david or professor schultes but i really do feel that in a way because of them they've made me possible but my i've been able to manifest things that frankly were were and are beyond their imaginings right and then whoever comes after me will take that and take it to a level that I can't imagine. That's what, that's what the lineage of knowledge is about. It's such a sacred, beautiful thing, man. It's just like, uh, it's just an incredible thing. The idea that uh, a, a river of knowledge and intuition can, can flow down the generations. It's it's and and you just play your part. You're like a, a kind of a canal captain, uh, for a brief moment in time. You know. Uh, carrying the ship forward through the, um, the storms and the impediments of life.
2: Yeah, and that's a it's a nice, really nice uh, way to put it as far as being an acknowledgement of of this myth about the self-made man. That hey, look, you know, we're all, everybody's standing on somebody else's shoulders. And
3: Dylan um, famously says, you know, he, you know, he said it's complete bullshit. This idea of going out to the world to find yourself. You don't go to the world to find yourself you go to the world to create yourself it's like there's, there's nothing to be found you have to escape the impediments it's like Baudelaire you know the horror of home you you go out you know or Terrence McKenna you jump off the cliff and you discover you land not on rocks but a feather bed or Jim Whittaker, the first American to climb Everest is that anyone who's not living on the edge when young is taking up too much space you go out there And you, you you know, you you don't find yourself, you create yourself. And having created yourself, you become a persona that other younger people can say, hmm, I don't want to be like that guy, but there's something there that that gets me turned on. And uh, maybe that will help me figure out, of course, the answer is who they are. It's a beautiful thing, you know, a young person who understands that becoming the architect of their own life is the greatest challenge in life, the creative challenge, you know, that despair is an insult to the imagination, pessimism and indulgence, you know, orthodoxy, the enemy of invention, you know, young people who grow up knowing that they should do whatever the hell they want to do and only then ask whether it was possible or permissible.
2: Right. Well, you know, you you mentioned how you hold yourself up in that, that cabin and wrote your first book do do you still these days when you you're when you're writing do do you still have the same kind of books around you that you refer to or, or has um, totally has
3: totally i mean i don't I don't literally lift them up I don't I mean I now I write reflexively I have no You know, writer's block to me is completely a silly idea. Can you imagine if a plumber came over to your house and suddenly said, I can't fix your sink because I got plumber's block? No, I just write. I'm a professional. I write every day. But that said, I'm surrounded by books. I live in, you know, my library is thousands of books. I mean, books are sacred to me. My library is my biggest creation, you know, and it's uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of books. I have, you know, when I moved to Vancouver from Washington DC, and that was ten more than ten years ago, even then I had fifteen hundred boxes of books.
2: You know. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Wade, hey, I've i taken up a, a enough of your time and I it it's really been an, a nice conversation. And um hey, and I, I just wanna say to 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 those who um uh still here and, and, and listening that hey, you've gotta pick up some of Wade's books. And you've also got to listen or should listen to the other episode where Wade goes over Magdalena uh, with Akash and, and uh, they talk about the story of Columbia and the story of the Magdalena River. You, but the thing about that is is, is that the, the Wade Davis story and the uh, and the legacy is much bigger. And, and so the point is that there's a whole bunch of ways to connect with him whether you look at the serpent in the rainbow or you pick up one river or you're you're into something like uh, into the silence whatever the case is um uh, there's way into um uh, the date the the wade davis world and uh it's a rich one um, has a lot of enlightening connections that go with it just in you can just you get it from the writing so the, the, there's no amount of words that i can put forth here that really capture it. So you got to pick up a professor Wade's one of one, of, one of Wade's books and do yourself a favor. So Wade, Hey, thanks so much for, for chatting with us.
3: You bet, Keith. Thanks so much for having me.